We'll look together at Romans chapter 1. Um, we just sang about magnifying Jesus, that he be magnified. And um, I don't know of a better way that that could have been than through the testimony that you heard. Uh, God was magnified for the great thing that he did. Uh, God was magnified in the salvation uh, that took place. God was magnified in the fact that his church, his people came together and did what they did. And the church altogether magnified Christ in the process of it all. So we needed to hear that. Uh, and it magnified our Lord. And I am thankful for that. Romans chapter 1. Uh, let's begin with verse 11, uh, where Paul begins by sort of apologizing for not being able to visit the church there at Rome as he would have wanted to before. So he said, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that uh, often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Uh, the church, my home church, uh, had a... Uh, an African-American pastor who visited us from time to time. Uh, his name was Wesley Grant. Uh, he was from uh, the Asheville area, a very effective pastor in his church, and he also had a uh, radio program. And so from time to time, when he would visit our church, we would take up a special offering to help, uh, help his uh, radio ministry. And he came and visited the church one day, but uh, unfortunately, uh, we had a vocational evangelist preaching, and so when a vocational evangelist comes, that's their vocation. The money that can be taken up in the church for that week, that's their salary. So uh, uh, all the money has to go to that evangelist. And so my pastor uh, called Brother Wesley Grant aside and said, look, we are so glad you're here, but we are not going to be able to take up an offering for you today. He said, we have a, 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 an evangelist, and you know the agreement was when he comes that all the money that's taken up goes to support him and his ministry. And um, uh, Brother Wesley said, that, that's okay. But my pastor said, we do want you to pray for us. We always love to have you pray for us during the meetings when you come. So he said, I would love to do that. And so when Brother Wesley got up to pray, 
He said, I just want to thank you folks for how many times y'all have helped me in my ministry and helped support my radio ministry. And I understand today that y'all have an evangelist here and that all the money that's taken up has to go for him so you cannot have a special offering for me. So if you want me to have any money, you're just going to have to slip it in my pocket. <laughs> well, uh, that is sort of what Paul was saying over in Romans 15, 24. Uh, he was preparing them in writing the book of Romans. He was preparing them for coming to visit. And he says here, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you through preaching, he says. But in Romans 15, 24, he said, I'm on, I'll be on my way to Spain. And if we'll use Brother Wesley's uh, terminology, Paul was telling them, when I come, I'm hoping you will slip some money in my pocket that will help me further the gospel going on to Spain. Okay? And so he's going to then visit Rome. But Paul tells them before he, he, uh, he goes, uh, notice he says uh, in uh, verse um, uh, 14, I am under obligation. The old King James Version says, I am a debtor. Uh, under obligation, he says, uh, and I want to fulfill that obligation. Now, when Paul says he's under obligation to the world, uh, I often wonder what did the world ever do for Paul that made him obligated to the world? I can think of a lot of things they did to Paul, but I can't think of anything they did for him to where he would say, well, you know, I'm indebted to you people. Y'all have done so. And so how are we to understand these words? And so the first thing I want us to do is look and see what Paul meant when he said, I'm a debtor or I am under obligation. I want us to secondly look to see how he met that obligation. And then the third thing to say, what motivated him to fulfill that obligation or to fulfill and discharge that debt. Paul says here, that I am a debtor or I am under obligation. I have obligations. Now, most of us, usually in most contexts, when we talk about having obligations, it's financial obligations, okay? Um, we have debts that we need to pay. Uh, somebody says, do you own your house? We say, well, uh, we, along with the bank, own it, okay? Uh, we have financial obligations to them. We are financially in debt. Now, you younger folks, this won't mean anything to you, but you older folks will remember the old Tennessee Ernie Ford song, okay? Another day older and deeper in debt, St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't come. I owe my soul to the company store, I am too far in debt to die, so I got to pay these bills. Well, financially indebted, well, there's obligations, but I don't think that's exactly what he's got in mind here because the, the, the world hadn't given Paul any money. He didn't owe them. I think we may come a little bit closer of what he means. I feel an obligation. I feel some kind of a pressure on me to act, and he feels this pressure on him to act, okay, uh, because of some kind of legal obligation. You know when you're riding in your automobile and you see that uh, light that was green and it turns yellow, you know, and you sort of feel somewhat of an obligation to start acting, 
Now, I've seen some of you drive, <laughs> and y'all react two different ways, okay? Some of you start slowing down, some of you speed up. But when it turns red, you have a real strong obligation. There's a real strong pressure that is on you to stop. And if you happen to look in the rearview mirror and see a policeman, that obligation in that sense is much stronger and greater intensity than normal. But the point is, you have a pressure on you. I have an obligation to stop the car. There's something I need to do. Well, that's close to what Paul is saying. You know, I feel a, 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 an obligation here, but I don't even think that's exactly it. And then we have moral obligations. We're morally, we morally feel that there is a pressure on us. If you see somebody that's hurt, for instance, if, uh, if you were maybe in a, in a car and it was not on a road where much was happening and you saw somebody by the side of the road or they, were in a, or they had wrecked their car, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't just pass them by. You would feel a pressure on you. You would feel, and what that pressure is, a strong sense of obligation to do something. It's a moral, that, it, it, that obligation that we all have, it, it's the same reason that we have such um, uh, moral aggravation, if we could say, in, in that, uh, 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 with that uh, priest and Levite that passed by that, that uh, uh, man that's lying there almost dead on the road. Why, why do we have such moral outrage when we hear that story? Because we know they should have had a strong moral feeling, an obligation, a pressure to do something. And that's sort of what Paul is talking about. I have an obligation. I feel pressed to do something. But you know, I'm not even sure that's the best way to explain what Paul is talking about here. Uh, I, I think maybe the better explanation or maybe a better illustration of it is something that, that happened in a church I was pastoring. And uh, I had a, a, a man who had been a former member of the church. Uh, he had left to go in service and did an entire career in service. And when he moved back, he didn't move right back to the neighborhood. So he's going to another church. And so he called me and asked if I could have a meeting with him. And I was happy to do it. And he explained to me that he had grown up there and he had a deep appreciation for the church. And uh, he said, let me ask you, I'm not a member of the church. He said, but would you be offended if I made a $5,000 contribution to the church? I said, yes, sir, but I'll get over it real quick. <laughs> uh, and so he gave a $5,000 contribution to the church. But he asked me, he said, would you be willing, would the church be willing to take $1,000 of that money? He said, you can spend it however you want. I just asked, there's a poor family in the neighborhood and they were close to my family growing up and they have need, would the church consider giving them $1,000 of that money and do with the rest? And I said, of course, I don't get to make those decisions, but I said, I don't believe that'll be a problem. And so I got with my, my deacons and I got with the finance committee and he sent us a check and we put it in the bank and we waited for it to clear. And then we went through everything we needed to do on the business side of it to take care of it. And then about five or six days later, we wrote that family a check. Now, between the times he gave us that check and we committed to spend $1,000 of it on, to give to this family, 
we were indebted to that family. Okay? You say, how were, that family had never done anything. That's true. But somebody had committed something to us, had given us something that we were to be stewards of that actually belonged to somebody else. And until we actually fulfill that obligation that somebody had given to us for them, we were debtors to these people. We were under obligation to those people because somebody had given something to us for them. And until it was, that transaction was completed, we were indebted to them. We were obligated to them even though they had never done anything for us. That's what Paul means here when he says, I am under obligation to the entire world. The world had done nothing for him. But something had been deposited with him that was intended to go to somebody else. And until it had gone to everybody that was intended to go to, he felt an obligation. Now, what is that? Well, he tells us in verse 15. He just said in verse 14, I'm under obligation. Well, what is the obligation? The next verse tells us. Okay, 15. To preach the gospel to you. What was given to Paul that wasn't his, that was intended to go to other people, was the message of the gospel. And so Paul said, I have an obligation to the world. Not that they've done something for me, but that God deposited something with me that I'm supposed to give to others and until I have given it, I am a debtor and I am an obligation, in, uh, I'm obligated to the world. Now, he's a debtor. So how's he going to fill that debt, complete that debt? How's he going to pay it? What's he going to distribute? Well, he's going to distribute the gospel, obviously, and he's going to do it through evangelism, as he says. If it's the gospel, how am I going to get it to people? It is going through to be the preaching of the gospel. It's going to be evangelism. It is going to be missions. That's what he feels is this obligation that not only he has, but do what we have. Folks, the gospel, he's going to preach the gospel. We always need to be real clear about what the gospel is. Folks, it is easy even for a church to lose sight of what the gospel actually is. Folks, it is, it is a message that can be uh, uh, given to somebody, imparted to someone that will actually help them. It is a message. Can, I imagine I, there was a, a, a colleague of mine was at an ordination, a Baptist ordination council one time when they were... Um, uh, evaluating a person for the ministry and asking theological questions. And this person had just graduated with a degree in Christian studies. And I'm glad it wasn't from our university or we would have taken back his diploma if there's a possible way to do that. Okay. Because this friend of mine asked this perspective, uh, 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 pastor that be ordained, he said, this is, a, this is a, an ordination council for the gospel ministry. He said, tell me what the gospel is. And he said, well, the gospel to me, I would want to stop him right there. 
said, I'm not interested in what it is to you, okay? I'm interested in what the Bible says it is, okay? But he says, to me, the gospel is finding people that are hurting and helping them. My friend said, okay. He said, do Mormons do that? He said, well, yeah. He said, do atheists do that? He said, well, yeah. So that's what the gospel is? The gospel is actually just finding people in need and helping them? That's the gospel? Uh, I hope you understand, that's not the gospel. You know, the fact that we've received the gospel may encourage us to do that, but if somebody needs to hear the gospel to go to heaven, are we going to tell them, oh, you just need to find people that are hurting and help them. And if you do that, you're going to heaven. That's precisely what this guy was, uh, was saying. Uh, can, can you imagine a person on their deathbed that you knew had been an ungodly person their entire life? And that person said, you know, I know that you're a Christian. Would you come and share with me what I need to hear? I need to hear the gospel. I'm dying. I mean, and you go to the person and they say, look, what is it that makes you be who you are? You know, I know a day. And you say, well, you know, I've, I've tried to live out all the virtues that I, that I possibly, I just try to be a good person. And he says, well, I hadn't done that. I said, oh, well, I, I've really tried to be a good father, you know, and, and I've been faithful to my wife. And he says, well, I hadn't done that. Oh, well, I, I've tried to be a good citizen. And, 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 and when I was employed, I, I always tried to be fair in my labor practices. And this man says, I haven't done that. Well, folks, you know what that means? That means he doesn't have any hope. Okay. There's, there's no hope for this man. Because the fact is, what he just heard was not the gospel. What he heard was a salvation by works, and if you don't have it by the time you're on your deathbed, there's no hope for you. Folks, that is not the message of the gospel. The man needed something that would bring salvation to his soul, that would give him hope even in his dying breath. Folks, that's why we could have somebody like talked a little bit about last week. That dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. What if he'd have turned to Jesus? Said, any hope of me getting in the kingdom? And Jesus, yeah, yeah. You've been a good man? You've been a good husband? You've been a good citizen? The man says, no. And Jesus, well, there's no hope for you, bud. <laughs> you know? Jesus said this day, this day, why? Because he turned to Jesus, even in his dying breath, and he received forgiveness for his sin. Folks, the good news, the gospel, is that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but that it is by his grace and his mercy. Okay? Nothing that we have done. It is simply through the work of Christ. That is the message of the gospel that we need to be proclaiming. Now, some people, and I've, and I've heard this attributed to different people, and I've never really found any well-known, respected theologian that said it. And that is, 
you know, uh, always preach the gospel wherever you go. And use words if you have to. Well, folks, how in the world are you going to spread the message of the gospel of Christ without words? How are you going? They say, well, I just lived my life right. That just told them you're a nice person. That's not what they need to hear. A person on their deathbed doesn't need to know how nice a person you are. A person on their deathbed needs to know, is there any hope for them? And the only hope is going to be in the gospel. And the only way a person can understand the gospel is with words. Because it tells them something about the nature of God. That takes words to do that. It tells them that Christ is the only way of salvation and that it takes place by his substitutionary sacrificial death on our behalf. It takes words to do that. It takes words to tell people that the way of salvation is by repentance and trusting in Christ in faith. You can't do that without words. So when somebody says preach the gospel and use words if necessary, let me assure you it will be necessary or it's not the gospel that they're getting. He says, I'm going to come and proclaim the gospel to you. He didn't say, I'm going to come live in a certain way before you. He certainly did, but that's not the gospel. He says, the gospel I am going to preach to you. And folks, he's going to preach it to everyone. Notice what he says in verse 14. I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians. That meant people who were highly cultured and people who weren't very highly cultured, you know, that includes everybody, falls in one of those categories or the other. To the wise and to the foolish. I'm going to preach to all of them, folks. You know why he's going to preach to all of them? Because all of them need it. Doesn't matter what their social background is. Doesn't matter about their uh, amount of education. It doesn't matter about their financial status or their social status. Every person needs it. And the reason every person needs it is we don't get saved by being nice. And we don't get saved by being good people. We get saved by turning to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting. And that's good news because that's the only way any of us would have ever made it. That is preaching the gospel. Folks, that's why the thief on the cross could have hope. Because Jesus had a message for it. That, that, that's why you, you, you would think of that great him, amazing grace. How sweet the sound, amazing grace. John Newton, the man who wrote that, by his own testimony, was as sinful as a person could possibly be, had stooped as low as a person could possibly stoop morally. And folks, if you'd have just said to him, well, be a good guy, or watch me how I live, he would have never had hope. He had hope because he turned his eyes in faith upon Jesus. And of all of that filth and sin, he was re it was removed from him through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the gospel is. That's how he was going to fulfill it. But he's got an obligation because the gospel was given to him. And he's under obligation to get that to the people whom God said it's supposed to go to. And he's going to do it by preaching and evangelizing. Folks, there's all kinds of ways to evangelize. You know what one of the best ways is? And, and I've heard people say, and folks, there is a clear distinction. We want to make sure. Coming to church doesn't save you. 
okay? So if you invite somebody to church, that's not going to save them. But I'll tell you something. If you got the right church and you invite them to church, the likelihood they're going to get saved is very, very strong. Inviting lost people to church is not saving them, but it might be the very steps that are going to be necessary to bring them to the kingdom of God, where they hear the message of God. And when they see the gospel lived out, as we've seen here, okay, one of the greatest ways to do evangelism is to bring people to church if you've got the right kind of church. And you've got the right kind of church. They will hear the gospel and they will be saved with God working in their hearts. That's an, he's given all of us that ob obligation. Now, what's the reason for this compulsion? Why does Paul feel so strongly? Why does he feel this pressure that is on him? Well, folks, there's various reasons. I mean, one of them, he's, he's really talking, well, really a couple of them he's talking about right here because God gave him something. He's under obligation. You see, Paul was on the road to Damascus at one time in the process of killing Christians, having them arrested and having them put to death. And he was on the road to do that, and he got intercepted. Jesus intercepted him and stopped him in his tracks and saved him and commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, a special messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, if we want to put it in the terminology of our text here, what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? Okay, something got deposited with him. God gave him something. And that, what he gave him was the gospel and says, you are to take this to the world. And so Paul says, I have this very strong sense of obligation. I have a debt to the world that I need to be giving them, not because they gave me something, but because God deposited something in me that is intended to go to them. And he felt this obligation because of the commission that he had. But there's another reason, and it's in the text here too. If you look actually at the verse right past what we read, he said, here's another reason. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. He says, because of the wrath of God. Folks, that's not a popular subject today. You know, uh, some people think it's very unbecoming of a supremely perfect being that he could be wrathful. Uh, I, you know, I hear people say, well, it, you know, it's like, so God's like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. Uh, no, that's not what the wrath of God is. Uh, the wrath of God is God's settled opposition to anything that violates his character and his nature. And the result of that is going to be the wrath of God, and it ought to be the wrath of God. Friends, if God cannot be wrathful and angry against that which violates his nature, we don't have any business worshiping him because he is not worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship because he is righteous and just, and when people break his laws, they are not breaking some abstract moral principle somewhere. They're breaking a law 
that, that is grounded in his very nature and character. And therefore, when we sin, it's not against some abstract principle. It is against the very nature and character of God. People say, well, he's under the wrath of God. Really? Well, what about John 3, 16? God so loves the world. Folks, he loves the world so much that he's angry at anything that keeps the world from him. His wrath is going to be displayed when he sees his people that he loves destroying themselves in breaking his laws. Okay. That, that's why it says he's angry with the way. Well, what about John 3:16? God so loved the world. Folks, listen, the same 20 verses later, same conversation that Jesus is having there with Nicodemus. When he says, God so loved the world, 20 verses later, after using that great statement, God so loved the world, he says, the wrath of God remains on anybody that does not turn to Christ in, in, for forgiveness. Jesus had no qualms, whatever. He was not embarrassed, whatever, to speak about God and his love in one moment and his wrath in another moment. Okay. That bothered Paul. It ought to bother us that people are under the wrath of God. When we have a message that is their only message of hope. You know, Paul spoke, speaks in other places of what motivated him to spread the gospel. And one of them is really the fact that it's gospel. I mean, you know what gospel means, don't you? You know what the very word means? It, it, it means good news. Well, we all like to tell good news. If it's really good news, why would we not want to tell it? Why would anybody be bothered? I love telling good news. Our kids love telling good news. When my kids were small and I would come home, and uh, if things had gone well, they met me at the door and had good things to tell me. And I knew they did because they met me at the door. And when I came home, if they did not meet me at the door, I knew the first thing my wife was going to say to me. Do you know what your kids did this morning? Okay. It was not good news. They love telling good news. We all love telling good news. Well, folks, this isn't only good news. This is absolutely the best news. Think of that uh, chapter in, in Luke where there's three parables. I call them the lost parables because they all involve something that is lost. There's the lost son, the prodigal son. And when he's found and comes home, you know what the father says? Come with me and let's rejoice. Something good has happened. Rejoice with me. Great news. Then there's the lost coin in the same thing. When that coin's found, what happens? They bring people in to rejoice. It is good news. And then the same thing with the lost sheep. He goes out and finds the one. And, and then he rejoices. It's because it's good news when people respond positively to the gospel. But, but Paul even speaks in other places. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he tells us another thing. I mean, you, you do have the wrath of God. Okay. The, the, the great need of humanity. There is that commission that is there. It is the fact that it is good news. But he says something else, does it? He says, the love of Christ constrains me to do it. My love that Christ has for me. 
when I think of what he's done for me and how he has died on the cross for the sins of the world, my love for him drives me to fulfill this obligation that I have to take this good news to a lost and dying world. If for no other reason, love for Christ. I heard the story years ago of a missionary who was still was working in a leper colony. Uh, and uh, the leper, the, she was home on furlough. And uh, she does like we have missionaries come and speak when they're on furlough. And, and um, she was explaining what kind of work she does and working with lepers. You have to come in contact with them. A very dreaded disease still. You know, and it, and uh, when she got through, she had somebody raise their hand. She said, yeah. And he said, I just want to tell you how much I admire you for that. Because I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. But she said, I'll do it for Jesus because of what he did for me. Okay. Paul says that is what drives me. That is what absolutely motivates me. But folks, the, the, greatest, the greatest motivation for it all ought to be actually the glory of Christ. For God's glory, we ought to do everything that we are doing for the glory of God. That ought to be it. You know, you know why God acts? He acts to his glory. It magnifies him. Folks, you know why we needed to be doing missions and evangelism? I like the way John Piper said it. Here's why we need to be doing evangelism and missions. Because not enough people are worshiping God. That's why. Because God's worthy to be worshiped. And there's not enough people that are worshiping him. And we need to be evangelizing so that more people acknowledge who, who God is and how great he is and that he is worthy to be praised. Paul, if you look in verse 5, look, look at what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, talking about the gospel and his apostleship, he's doing this and going to the Gentiles. Look, why did God send him to the Gentiles? For his namesake. For his name, to glorify his name. Folks, it's all through the scriptures. We just miss it at times. You, you, you know why the 23rd Psalm, you know why the, 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 you, that, that great shepherd loves his sheep and is taking care of the sheep? You know why it says he's doing it? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for, yeah, for his namesake. So that he would be glorified. My friends, God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. And, and that is what we have the opportunity to be a part of. It enhances his glory. And no wonder he then says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Folks, why in the world would a person say that? You, know, you would never say, well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel unless people thought there might some, be some reason to be. You know, he, he's got to address that. Well, why would people be ashamed of the gospel? Folks, it leaves me scratching my head wondering why. <laughs> um, but Paul knew. You know, th there could be because of pressures you know, to be ashamed of the gospel. What would that mean? That would mean, you know, I, I sort of at times wouldn't necessarily be want to be identified with Jesus in certain situations. To be in certain uh, contexts and places, you know, to know that I am a believer and to stand up for him Paul says, look, I, I know that, but I want you to know something. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed of it at all. Folks, if if, if there's so many reasons we get about why should we not be ashamed? Listen, Jesus hung on a cross. That was about the greatest shame you could have. And he was beat to a pulp. And he was hanging in shame, naked on a cross. And he was not ashamed of you. And he was not ashamed of me. And we're not to be ashamed of him. Folks, if it is the message of salvation, and that is mankind's only hope, how in the world could we possibly be ashamed of it? If Jesus has died to set people truly free, if Jesus has died to take care of the greatest problem that human beings can possibly have, if Jesus has died and the gospel opens the door to that, why in the world would we possibly be ashamed? Folks, you know, I'll tell you what I'd be ashamed to believe. Let me me say it this way. I'd be ashamed to believe, you know, there's no God and nothing produced everything. I'd be ashamed to tell somebody I believe that. You know, that that non-life produced life. That non-consciousness produced consciousness and and thinking. And that non-reason produced reason and thinking, that all that came about by nothing. Folks, I'd be ashamed to tell somebody I believe that, you know? But that's what a lot of people believe. But I'll tell you what I'm not ashamed of, and that is to know that the world was made by Jesus and for Jesus. All things were made by him and for him. And that when we went astray, that he loved us enough to give himself for us, that he redeemed us, that he gave his life, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that he paid the price for our sins, and that our hope is in him, and that he is going to return, and that every individual is going to then see that and is going to bow in humble adoration for him. I want to tell you folks, I will just say real clearly with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the best news that we could possibly have, and we are privileged to be children of God and to be identified with Jesus. It is an honor. Paul wore it as a badge of honor that he was a slave unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote over and over, I am a servant of Christ. And he was glad of it and thankful for it. And folks, no wonder he said, I only glory in one thing, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified to to the world and the world unto me. Folks, that's that's the gospel that we have been given charged with. And we have the privilege daily to be a part of doing what Paul is doing. You have missionaries that you're supporting. We, we give money supporting our international mission boards and our, our North American mission board. There are other missionaries that we support. We were supporting missions when we helped this family do what they did. You're doing missions and evangelism when you take the opportunity to share with your neighbors. And yes, when you invite them to the church because you've got a right kind of church to where they can hear the gospel and we can fulfill that obligation that we have. It's not only Paul 
But all of us are obligated. All of us are indebted because when God saved us, he deposited something with us. And it's the gospel. And it's our responsibility to take it to the world. You know, there's a, a fable story, makes a point, it's not true, but it certainly makes a point, that uh, when Jesus went back up into heaven, and the angel said, well, what are you doing back here? He said, well, my work's finished. He said, your work's finished. There's all kinds of people down there that needs to hear what happened. What are you going to do? He said, well, I've, I've got 12 disciples going to do that. Those 12 you actually had when you were on earth, you know, I mean, you are trusting everything to them? What's your second plan? And he said, I don't have one. I'm counting on them to do it. Friends, he doesn't have a second plan. He's counting on us to do it. And it ought to be a joy that we have in working together and being co-laborers together with him in spreading the gospel and in so doing, fulfilling our obligation that we have to the world. Somebody did it for us. Somebody did it for us. And aren't you thankful? Let's stand. Father, we thank you that there is a such thing as the gospel. Lord, that's our only hope. Uh, Lord, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Lord, we were under your wrath and we deserved it. And Lord, we thank you that you were merciful to us and that you loved us while we were yet sinners and that you sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we thank you that somebody and maybe many people along the way shared the gospel with us, pointed us to Christ, Lord, to where we could be brought into the ark of salvation ourselves. And then, Lord, we thank you for the the commission that you have given to us. Lord, that we too are now under obligation, Lord, a joyous obligation, to fulfill what you set out for us to do. And that is to share the message, the life-saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be like Paul and forever sense this very strong obligation pressing on us. And Lord, help us to be faithful in carrying that out as long as you give us life and breath. Thank you for letting us be a member of a church that encourages this very thing and that provides even greater opportunities for us to fulfill this commission that you've given to us In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.